This is Mike Lewis. The following podcast contains frank discussions of sexual abuse by clergy, as well as the contents of the McCarrick Report. This may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Before we begin, a prayer for healing for survivors of abuse. God of endless love, ever caring, ever strong, always present, always just, you gave your only Son to save us by his blood on the cross. Gentle Jesus, Shepherd of Peace, join to your own suffering the pain of all who have been hurt in body, mind, and spirit by those who betrayed the trust placed in them. Hear the cries of our brothers and sisters who have been gravely harmed, and the cries of those who love them. Soothe their restless hearts with hope. Steady their shaken spirits with faith. Grant them justice for their cause, enlightened by your truth. Holy Spirit, comforter of hearts, heal your people's wounds and transform brokenness into wholeness. Grant us the courage and wisdom, humility and grace to act with justice. Breathe wisdom into our prayers and labors. Grant that all harmed by abuse may find peace in justice. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Greetings and welcome to this edition of Peter's Field Hospital. I'm Mike Lewis, the managing editor of wherepeteris.com. And in this episode, Dan Amiri and I are joined by Christopher Lamb. Christopher Lamb is joining us from London, where he's currently enduring the lockdown. He is the Vatican correspondent for the tablet, and he is the author of the book, The Outsider, Pope Francis and His battle to reform the church. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the McCarrick Report, its implications, and what it means for the church and for survivors of clerical abuse going forward. Before we begin this episode of Peter's Field Hospital, I would like to make a special request. If you appreciate our work at Where Peter Is, and you've gotten something out of our articles and podcasts, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding platform that enables fans or patrons to make a monthly contribution to support content creators. Running where Peter is is not free. Our apostolate has grown to the point where I have begun to work on it full time. If we are going to succeed, we need your help. If you would like to support our work on Patreon, please click on one of the links to our Patreon page or on the button on the right-hand column of wherepeteris.com. Thank you very much for your generosity. We can't do it without you. Welcome to the podcast, Christopher. Hi, Mike. Dan, thank you for having me. So you've been very close, obviously, following Vatican Affairs as a journalist. And 
we've been anticipating this McCarrick report for over two years now. I know we talked about it. I even asked you about it during our, our Fratelli Tutti live event where you joined us from the streets of Rome, just outside the Vatican. And you said that there were some issues that were holding it up. So it finally dropped on November 10th, exactly one week after the U.S. presidential election and a little less than a week before the USCCB annual November General Assembly. Maybe you can fill us in on why it took so long, why it dropped, when it dropped, and what your initial thoughts of it were when it was finally released. Yes, sure. I, I think the, one of the reasons why it, it took so long to compile is that there was a lot of new information and there was a lot of facts that had to be checked and added. And I think what they might have thought was going to be the length of the document early on ended up not being the case and they had to extend it. And I think there may have been some reports saying that somehow that the document was cut down as far as I can understand and I was told that it was certainly never cut down and it was only increased and extended and it ended up as a 449 page document with 1,412 footnotes and it is pretty exhaustive and the first time that the Vatican has really done an internal inquiry on a case like this and then published the findings. So certainly a, a new moment in terms of the church's battle against sexual abuse and of course transparency in that regard and i think the the vatican was keen to publish it before the us bishops met because of course the mccarrick case has been a a, a huge how can we say it, it's been very corrosive in terms of trust in the church's hierarchy it the, the report took a long time to compile, but it, I think people can see it's pretty thorough. And certainly, I think the, the, the time lag was because of all the material that had to be brought together, 90 witnesses and many documents. And so I think that's why it, it was published when it was and, and why it, it had that length of time in preparing it. So as you were saying, this was the first time that the church has ever produced a document publicly in this way. I know in the past I've heard about dossiers that have been prepared on certain scandals or certain controversies and presented to the Pope. So, for example, you hear about a dossier that was passed from Benedict to Francis regarding homosexuality in the Curia. You hear other stories, the Medjugorje report that we've never seen the results of that was undertaken during Benedict's papacy into Francis's papacy, but also various reports on scandals and crimes of this nature. Do you think that, first of all, you say that you agree that this is unprecedented, but do you think that this is a step forward for the church in terms of transparency, in terms of letting the people of God know what's going on? I do, I do think it's a step forward in transparency, because I think that's a necessary part of tackling and dealing with this terrible scandal of abuse and its cover-up and its mismanagement and so i think this is where things are are heading and i think you know pope francis when he announced the mccarrick report said that that the investigation would follow the path of truth wherever that led and i think the mccarrick report is an attempt to go down that path 
uh, of course there will be people who still have questions that are unanswered the report couldn't go down every avenue it couldn't deal with absolutely all the aspects um of this case but i think in terms of the commission that it was asked to do it is a pretty exhaustive inquiry and i think we're going to see more of these things because sunlight is the best disinfectant and i think that's what the church is is realizing and of course it's painful and it requires a culture shift as well as much as anything but i think it's happening from your perspective and i'm just curious as an american does this have impact on a global basis or is it making the news overseas how should we understand this global importance yeah i think it is making uh, an impact outside of the us and because i think the the issues that are raised in the report have a global importance of course there is a specific us context here that that the inquiry looks at but i think that it is certainly having an impact more broadly because the issues that are being examined in the McCarrick report around, say, the appointments of bishops and investigating allegations, anonymous allegations of abuse, failing to deal with questions of sexual misconduct and high levels in the clergy. These are, these are issues that are not simply confined to, to the US experience. These, this, this is an issue that, that, that is, is much broader than that. So, yeah, I think it has a global, a global impact for sure. Regarding the reception of the document, I'm sure that obviously this is in many ways an encouraging step in the right direction, but I think a lot of Catholics are still very skeptical about this marking a definitive change going forward. I think in Pope Francis's case, I think that's fully his intention, but personally, having worked in church bureaucracy for nearly 10 years, I you know, the intention doesn't quite meet up to the reality in the end. And so in particular, I've been curious about the response of survivors of clerical abuse to this document. And so I have, I found three examples on Twitter from prominent outspoken survivors in response to the document. The first one comes from Marie Collins, who was on the Clerical Abuse Commission, and she didn't tweet a lot about it. She did respond to one other tweet though and she wrote reports excuses promises mean little to me anymore clericalism is alive and well marching forward unhindered and then another prominent survivor especially in the last couple of years is, is juan carlos cruz who was a victim of father caradima in chile and that was obviously a a huge turning point in the church and in pope francis's approach and he wrote, as a survivor, I continue to be disgusted and saddened after reading the McCarrick report. I can only imagine what the survivors went through as bishops ignored them and covered up, and as Vigano and others tried to further their agendas by using survivors as pawns. And then finally, another survivor who's actually been a contributor to where Peter is, and I consider him a friend, is Mark Joseph Williams, who lives in New Jersey. And he wrote, as a clerical abuse survivor, I read the McCarrick report through the night. I am saddened, but hopeful in Francis. It is a time for humility to face this great trial in our beloved broken church, a huge step. 
we now must carry the cross for one another to heal and transform. So in these three, three messages, you see a spectrum of responses ranging from more of the same to I, I genuinely see this as a step forward. What kind of reactions have you been seeing or, or what are your thoughts about how survivors have seen this? I think the first thing to say is that with, without survivors, we wouldn't have this support without their courage and determination to speak out. And I think that's really important. And it's so easy to forget that when we're faced with these kind of stories, it's so easy to get drawn down the kind of partisan alleys and to try and see what justifies your own position, etc. So I think that the reaction from what I've seen has been a mix, as, as you point out. Some think welcome this, others maybe feel that it doesn't go far enough. I, I think we have to be aware that whenever you have a report like like this one, particularly for survivors, and I don't want to speak for them, but I, I think we, we can say that it often reopens the wounds of, of abuse and of what they went through. And I, and I think it's very difficult and I think we have to be aware of that. And I think that the church should always take uh, and and listen to the to the criticism. And of course, it's it doesn't go far enough in many respects. And nothing the church does will go far enough. But but I th I think that the reaction so far I, I, from what I've seen has been that yes, this is a step in the right direction. But there's still a lot more to do. Chris, in my mind. We can understand the McCarrick report as a post-abuse synopsis of the steps that the church has taken, their failings through the years, but we still have yet to really, I think, confront or tackle the issues that lead to abuse in the first place. And whether that's in the seminaries, psychological evaluation, or just this topic of clericalism that Francis has been so outspoken about. I don't know if the distinction is helpful in this discussion here, or if you've seen any discussion along how to prevent this from happening in the future. Because even still, as we dive into our conversation with some of these new initiatives of the church, the Vosestis, it seems like it's always about how do you deal with reports. It's never about how you actually tackle this significant issue in the church. How do we prevent it from happening ever again? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that it can't just be about the structural changes. Of course, you have to have the structural changes in the laws. And, and Pope Francis has introduced a series of, of regulations and laws since 2018. I think you can say, see how, when you read the McCarrick report, how what the Pope has done, how that is linked to preventing a future McCarrick. So for example, the handbook on dealing with allegations that was released over the summer instructs bishops to investigate anonymous allegations, for example. We've got the legislation Vosestis to deal with bishops who cover up and to investigate the bishops. So I think you, you, you've got the, on the one hand, the, the structural legal changes, and you've got to have those. But as you rightly point out, it, it's got to go deeper than that. And, and it's got to be about preventing um, abuse and having a, a, a culture of stopping uh, and uh, stopping abuse and preventing it and, and a culture of safeguarding. And I think formation is crucial, proper 
formation within seminaries, but also ongoing formation and ensuring that the church is always you know, having that, I think, understanding about the need for a culture of safeguarding at all times. I think that's absolutely vital. And, and really, I think that the, the, the impact of these reports is not just about structural changes. It, it is um, a profound ecclesial challenge because there has to be long-term reforms around how we are the church because it's not good enough simply to say we've remended that law so we can just go back to how things were before because we've got a new law it, it is so much deeper than that there are profound theological and ecclesial challenges and implications of these reports and they've got to be worked out and i think the pope is making the right steps in relation to these questions but it can't just be him it's got to be the whole church i'm a resident of the archdiocese of washington so McCarrick became my archbishop in the year 2001, and having connections within the church and around the church growing up and through my early adulthood, I, I heard these rumors. I heard the Beach House rumors about Archbishop Cardinal Mr. McCarrick. He was presented to us as our archbishop. I had no firsthand knowledge of any of this. I had just heard the rumors, and I had to I felt like I was torn. I had to trust these rumors or just trust the church who was saying, this is your archbishop. You owe him what you owe your archbishop. And to find out 17 years later that the rumors were absolutely true felt like a tremendous betrayal to me. I guess there was a part of me that thought these rumors are so well known. You know, in 2008 or 2009, Richard Seif actually put the affidavits from, from the seminarians who had accused him, which eventually resulted in out-of-court settlements, put them up on his website for anyone to see. I was aware of those. I think I had read those. And to me, it just struck me as, as such a discord that if this information is here, then why hasn't anything been done in terms of sanctions or penalty? He was out and about. I, I worked for the Bishop's Conference in the early 2010s. He was retired. He came and he would he said mass a couple of times. I saw him at a few meetings. I saw him in Rome in 2011. For all I could tell, the church saw him as a perfectly respectable retired cardinal. And then to have every single rumor exposed as the truth in 2018 just struck me. Granted, my betrayal is nothing compared to that of his victims. But how can you ever trust these people again, I guess, is, is where a lot of us are left. Yeah, and I understand that. And I think it's totally legitimate to, to, to feel that way, given what, what happened. And, and I think that's also why this report has, has come out, because it is trying to deal with the, the terrible sense of, of betrayal that people feel and the distrust that there is now amongst many Catholics, particularly in the U.S., over the, the leadership. And it goes wider than the U.S., but yes, it is this feeling of being totally uh, let down. I found one of the most striking and heartbreaking sections in the McCarrick Report, the part about Mother One, who in the 1980s wrote to the cardinals of the United States and the papal nuncio after she had 
concerns about how McCarrick had behaved with her sons. And you felt it was so heartbreaking because if only the church had listened to this mother who who could see the problem with her own eyes and saw McCarrick inappropriately behaving with her sons. And and for me, that's a huge lesson the church has to learn to, to we, the, the hierarchy has to listen to women and you know has to broaden out how it makes decisions away from just a closed group this is absolutely crucial if we are going to stop betrayals like this happening in the future yeah on that point in particular and we can dive into the details of the report you know later but i think thinking about that mother's experience and the story that she tells versus the situation in this New Jersey catering room, this dining hall where what they witnessed was very similar to what this mother witnessed, but it was these priests that you would turn to and expect them to do something about abuse who did nothing, who kept it silent. It was a mother who who spoke up. And I think for so long we've, and, and we're continuing to see it in the church today, where the experience of women and mothers is often cast aside or ignored or just, honestly, they just haven't been given the positions of influence that priests and bishops have, and they just don't have the voice that they need to have. And uh, I just think that juxtaposition of that mother and then these priests in this New Jersey dining room is just, it, it can't be more striking. Yeah, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And I, and I think that as this report starts to sink in i do think that we we need to really think about the culture change that has to take place inside the church and amongst those who make the big decisions because we can't have a a, a repeat of this and it, it we have to learn the lessons one of the the things i think that and i think there is strong evidence that francis has been doing this since the beginning of his papacy is the idea that the papacy cannot be bought. I think prior to his papacy, people were able to use money and influence in order to secure the seats in the front row at the papal audiences and to go to the important meetings and sit in the important foundations. And you look at Maciel and you look at McCarrick and you look at law and they all fit that mold. Then again, people slip through the cracks. Nevertheless, and having worked for the church, now granted, I wasn't, I, I worked for the U.S. church, and maybe things are a little bit different at the Vatican, but I felt like that there was a certain ceiling that I could only address my concerns up to a certain level. And then from there, I had to trust that the message would get further up. And as someone who actually worked for the church, I can only imagine someone who is just a simple Catholic who has a concern, like, who's going to listen to them? How are they going to be heard? There's something, I think most Catholics would have no idea where to begin when it comes to getting a message to their bishop. Obviously, bishops have a lot on their plate. And if everybody knew that you could just pick up the phone and get a hold of your bishop, that that could easily be abused. So there needs to be some common sense there. But it's just, I think there's an inaccessibility at the highest reaches of the church that is troubling to me. I know that Pope Francis in spirit wants to break those laws, 
I know some people who have been elevated to high positions personally who don't exemplify that downwards while they might exemplify it upwards. You know what I'm saying? That deception, the deception that McCarrick engaged in, the deception that others have engaged in, they manage up, they don't manage down. And other than some kind of representative voice or giving people a, a, a real way to communicate with church leadership, I, I think that the same people, this is the fear, and I think a lot of people have it, that we, we keep saying these things, but that real change needs to happen. It needs to happen. Women need to have a voice. Lay people need to have a voice. People who have been hurt by the church, who have been hurt by their pastor. I mean, how many people do you know who have been wronged by their parish priest and have tried to voice this to their diocese? I don't know of many who have been successful in feeling heard in such situations. And I think that's clericalism. I think that's a, a good word for it. I, and I think this applies in a startling and horrifying fashion when the issue is abuse yes and i think clericalism is what pope francis has diagnosed at the heart of this uh, this crisis that it is about an abuse of power and that i think is what he is trying to get the church to to face up to and you talk about bishops being inaccessible or not listening to people or not really being accountable. And I, th I think what Francis has repeatedly said is that you know, bishops and pastors have to be close to their people, have to be connected to their flocks and to understand uh, what people are saying and, and, and what's happening and not to be removed and remote. And I think that's absolutely crucial to this and also i think what the pope is saying about synodality synodal church one which is much more of a uh, less hierarchical doesn't mean there is there aren't decision makers but a less hierarchical church a church that embraces problems and difficulties together gives lay people a voice gives women a voice gives uh, a whole range of people agency and leadership that is only to the good, given what we've seen in, 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 this, in these reports and, of course, throughout the abuse scandals that have, that, have, that have plagued parts of the church in, in recent years. I wanted to touch briefly on these two documents, the Boss Estes and the, and the handbook that describes what bishops should do in cases of anonymous reporting. You had suggested, and it seems to me, reading the McCarrick Report and reading these documents, that these documents were almost written having the McCarrick report right there in front of them, that a lot of the things that described in Vos Estes are described the failures of bishops in New Jersey and 2005-2006 with Vigano and Willet. And so all these situations, all these momentous occasions where it seemed like McCarrick was about to be trapped, caught, punished, he somehow escaped. He kind of weaseled out. And that was because the church failed. There weren't clear lines of responsibility. It wasn't clear who was reported who or how soon they should, should follow up. Uh, I don't know if you could expand on the impact of these documents and what they mean for the church going forward. And just to put it to you, frankly, would these reports stop McCarrick from happening again? Well, uh, it's hard to answer that uh, question about whether they would stop 
definitively a, a McCarrick case happening again, but I do think they provide some safeguards against it happening. And certainly I think they point the way for how the church should deal with abuse going forward. The, the two things you mentioned, the Vos Estes and the handbook, both of those came after the abuse summit that took place in February 2019 with leaders of bishops' conferences from all over the world. That was an unprecedented moment in, in the church's history in terms of dealing with abuse. And what that summit really tried to show was that the church had to follow the principles of transparency, had to have proper laws and structures in, in, in place to deal with this with these crises. And I think if you look at the Vos Estes legislation, that was badly needed because, as you are aware, that in 2002, when the US bishops produced their norms to deal with abuse, there was nothing about dealing with bishops. And of course, McCarrick was involved with drafting those. And so the Vos Estes legislation is all about dealing with that, with that issue and also widening the definition of abuse not to just include minors, but to also include uh, vulnerable adults and, and people who are in authority in the church behaving in, a, in an unacceptable way in terms of sexual misconduct. So that was very important. And then, of course, um, investigating anonymous allegations and not just dismissing them. As in the past, you know, the, 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 the hierarchy would say it's anonymous. We don't know who said this, etc. We don't need to do anything about it. Now the rule says, no, you have to do something. You have to look into this. You can't just dismiss it. The other important thing that, that we should bear in mind is the Pope abolishing the pontifical secret, because that also, I think, hampered inquiries. People were scared to come forward. It wasn't clear what was being investigated because everything was under the pontifical secret. So if you said anything, it, it could be a, a terrible breach because, of course, if you break the pontifical secret, you are, are excommunicated. Now, we probably need a canon lawyer to go into all the details of what pontifical secret means. But the abuse cases, when they were under pontifical secret, it, it meant that there was a way for people to avoid any kind of accountability for what they were doing. So I think all those changes are, are, are really important. And I think all of them can be linked to this McCarrick case, as well as obviously having a, a, a much broader remit. But certainly, I think McCarrick is the spur for a lot of it. You mentioned the broadening of the definition of abuse to include vulnerable adults and adults who are under the authority of others. And Dan mentioned it. The cases in New Jersey that happened in, in 2000, I guess they happened in the 90s, but they reached out-of-court settlements with gag orders where the victims couldn't mention it publicly in exchange for a financial settlement. And I believe that the terms of these agreements didn't require McCarrick to admit guilt. I think they were just out-of-court financial settlements to, to basically kill the issue. The accusation was, was the beach house with the seminarians, which other former seminarians and priests have come forward and said that similar things happened to them since, since 2018, and these revelations came out. Would the new guidelines ha have forced that to become public at the time? Um, 
Are there other bishops around the country who have secret settlements about inappropriate sexual behavior that we don't know about? I mean, it, it opens up a huge can of worms. Obviously, the bishops at the time agreed to these settlements. They've all retired. And since then, their successors have been apparently aware of it and, and chose not to disclose it. Really, if, if this one person who was abused by McCarrick in 1969 and 1970 as a minor had not come forward, he would have died and we would have never heard of it, is what it seems like to me. And I guess that's another thing with this distrust. I knew him as this emeritus bishop, yet he had this on his record. Supposedly, he was given an instruction to lay low, which he didn't follow. Do you think that this kind of thing is going to be addressed in the future? Do you think the McCarrick report suggests that other steps might be taken going forward? I don't see how a bishop today could have an out-of-court settlement with someone who's accused them of sexual misconduct and to keep that secret. I don't, just don't see how that would be possible under the current laws that we now have in the church, because it's very clear that an allegation of sexual misconduct comes under the legislation that you know has to be investigated and is, is termed abuse so i, I it, it, of course it's possible that a, that, that a bishop could do that and try and get away with it but i think it would be a resigning offense um a disciplinary offense so i certainly think that that, that has shifted i think the thing about this abuse crisis is that i don't think there's ever a moment where you can really say oh, look, we've dealt with this now, let's move on. I think it, it, it requires an ongoing response. And you know, as soon as the church says, oh, we, we, we've handled this, that's the moment when you know, we need to, need to be most concerned and worried, because I don't think you can ever say that. Following up on the trust issue as well, there were some revelations that within the McCarrick report, maybe not as major as some of the others, but they did strike me as being instances where high-ranking churchmen were being less than truthful. And what I'm thinking of specifically were the denials of Pope Francis and Cardinal Farrell that they had never heard these allegations at all, which the McCarrick report does say that they at least had heard the rumors. And then Cardinal Whirl, in particular, who said he wasn't aware of any allegations against McCarrick. Now, I know that the it was worded very carefully, and I think he may have said in the Archdiocese of Washington, which may have been true, but he actually, and it's odd because he did the right thing. There was an accusation in 2004, I believe from somebody at Mount St. Mary's, about McCarrick, and Cardinal Whirl actually forwarded that concern onto Rome. Yet, when he was interviewed, he said that he was unaware of any such thing. There was also a statement, I believe, that was tweeted by J.D. Flynn, where the Archdiocese of Washington said that they did not assist McCarrick in finding his living accommodations. Yet, the McCarrick report said that Cardinal Whirl assisted Cardinal McCarrick in moving into one of his residences. Or, or helped arrange that. And I know that some close attention is being given to that. Do you think any of these people are going to uh, apologize, clarify the record, explain what they meant when they said that they had never heard anything, yet the report 
clearly contradicts that. Yeah, I, I think you know you raise a very important uh, point here because the thing about this McCarrick report is that it, it really lays things out in factual terms. It's it's not a kind of justification or a, a, a kind of uh, judgment. It's it is really laying out facts and laying out what happened and i think that's very helpful because as you say what people have said previously can be checked against this record and that's very important because again that's about accountability so if people have or bishops have said things that that are incorrect in terms of what what the documentation says then yes they should correct the record and i think there are uh, probably a number of people who who are feeling a bit uncomfortable, and and I think no one comes out of this McCarrick report with their reputations enhanced. I think one of the important outcomes will be, as you say, people having to correct things, apologise, and and I certainly think maybe the bishops who were very quick to defend Archbishop Vigano when he called on Pope Francis to resign in 2018. Maybe some of them will feel that they need to correct the record and make amends, given that this report, McCarrick report, really does show how what Vigano said in 2018 about Pope Francis, saying that how Pope Francis knew about sanctions on McCarrick and rehabilitated him, etc., how Vigano said a lot of things that, that really have been found out to be false. Yes, I think one of the things about this McCarrick report is it, it should encourage people who have said things that are, that are incorrect to correct the record and to apologise if necessary. Chris, let me just ask you a, a tough question here, if I may, but what gives you confidence that this report commissioned by Pope Francis, which in, all, in the grand scheme of things makes him look relatively better than some other popes in recent history. What gives you confidence that this report was honest to the truth, especially during the last seven years or so? I think it's a good question. And I think ideally a report like this should be independent if that's possible, rather than the church investigating itself. It would have much more credibility, I think, if that was the case. The reason why I do have confidence in it is because I think that it has been, it is so detailed and and exhaustive, and and the fact that it is setting things out in as objective terms as objective terms as possible. That's why I think that it is helpful and a, a very good resource in that respect. But of course, you're right; it's something that's been commissioned by the Pope, and it is an in-house church document i think for me one of the things that i i found important is that pope francis himself subjected himself to to, to questioning by the investigators and benedict XVI, i understand cooperated and with it and took questioning so that i think is a good sign now of course people can say he's the pope and the, the investigators wouldn't be able to to scrutinize him you know in a robust way and etc but i think that look it, it it is a step forward and i think certainly probably would have been better if an independent outside investigation team had done the report you could say that you could argue that 
but I do think this is a, a very detailed piece of work. Not only was this not independent, but we do we know who the authors were? And one of the things about the release was there was no press conference. There, I don't know that there's really been a, a question and answer. Is there any plan for that? Is there any plan for uh, further discussion in the church? I, I mean, I have a feeling that a lot of the bishops in the United States, especially the ones who supported Vigano and some who continue to support Vigano, will probably take a very skeptical stance towards this as a whitewash. I'm just curious if the Vatican, if this is the final word from the Vatican on this, or are they willing to engage in a dialogue about how this happened, why this happened, how this report was conducted, and why we can trust it? Yeah, I don't know if there's any plan for that at the moment. I think the reason why it was presented as it was just released is I think it's a very long report and it requires people to read it. And I think if you had a press conference, the danger is, is that, the, that it would be, we'll tell you how to read this report and we'll give you our spin on it, as it were. Whereas actually, I think what the Vatican is saying is, look, read it, here are the facts, make, make your judgment. And so I think there was a deliberate attempt not to try and spin it in any way. Now, I think, of course, I'm sure the Vatican, if issues arise from the report, will take questions about it and respond to queries, etc. I'm sure that's that will be, that will happen as time goes on. But I also think that there's things that the US bishops can say about this report because it is very much concerning the church in the United States and the leadership of the church in the United States. My, my follow-up question here on Francis and potential whitewashing and Vigano and the skeptics is another kind of tough question for you, Chris. We hear a lot about 2013 to 2018 we hear a lot about Vigano's claims and what he should have done, didn't do, what he told Francis or not told Francis. And it, it I don't know, as a trying to be a little bit more objective about it, it might seem like the report litigates the Vigano question extensively, maybe almost obsessively. And I don't know if that's uh, an assessment that you share, but why was it so important to spend so much time on Vigano when it seems like at this point he's lost the plot, if you will. Yes, I think that the Vigano dossier came out in August 2018 and, of course, made a lot of explosive claims, calling on the Pope to resign <laughs> being the most explosive thing. And I think it, it did cause quite a lot of confusion and, and, and problems. And I think there were so many bishops, a number of bishops who, who supported Vigano, and they, they also, a lot of them also demanded an, an inquiry. And so I think we have to see the link between Vigano's dossier and the McCarrick report, because the McCarrick report was in a, the announcement that there would be this report came a few weeks after Vigano had issued his dossier. So I, I, I do think the two are linked. And therefore, as you say, what Vigano says is litigated because I think that there is a genuine concern from the Vatican that 
what Vigano has said has been accepted at face value, whereas what the Vatican sought to do was in, in the report is to set out what then what was known about McCarran, but also to explain where they had uh, misled people. Of course, Vigano is the former papal ambassador to the United States. So I think that institutionally had a massive impact, the fact that he had said those things about the Pope and had made those claims about the mishandling of McCarrick. And so therefore, I, I do think that is why a, a good chunk of the report does seek to set the record straight with regard to the Vigano questions or the Vigano statements. So I don't think it will convince the Vigano supporters, but certainly an attempt to set the record straight. Yeah, it's funny because I think a lot of Vigano supporters, and I mean, it, it was starting to become an issue, even uh, the National Catholic Reporter, who is the opposite of a Vigano supporter, we're starting to call for when is this document going to come out? What is it going to say? I think for a lot of people, the, the answer is finally. It, it seems to address a lot of questions in terms of content and narrative and timeline. It's funny because I, I saw McCarrick at my brother's diaconate ordination in Rome. The main celebrant was Cardinal Leveda, who was the prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. So this is October 2011. Vigano was already the nuncio in the U.S., and Benedict was still pope. And there was McCarrick celebrating this mass. And then at the end of the week at North American College at the chapel, the main celebrant of the mass was Cardinal McCarrick. And those dates were lodged in my mind because McCarrick had already been accused, and I was just trying to think of when did I see him, and and so. I knew something was off when he said he was under formal sanctions and Francis lifted them. And so I, and so basically I tried to put the pieces together of what may have happened. And so I wasn't surprised by any of the narrative that was put forth about that. What really surprised me was Vigano's negligence himself. I, it struck me as a little fishy that he stopped being Nuncio in 2016 and didn't say a word until two years later. And then he's claiming that there are files in the nunciature. Why didn't he get some of those files during that five years? There were just certain things. And I think the, the revenge narrative says a lot. The witnesses who recalled what he said following the meeting with Pope Francis, where he said, oh yeah, Pope Francis and I are going to work on Vatican reform. And I'm going to be part of that. It seems that maybe when he retired, he thought he was going to become a cardinal and help with the reform of the Curia and was a little disappointed when he was just told, thank you for your service, enjoy your retirement. So maybe a little bit of bitterness there. But I think for people who haven't been following it as closely as you and I have, and correct me if you were surprised by any of the huge revelations in there, but I think that this helps for the bulk of people who just want to just want answers, who just want to know what fell apart here, because I think it's very clear where the administrative failures were. It's very clear where McCarrick was given the benefit of the doubt. It was very clear when his accusers and the survivors were overlooked and ignored. And I think joined with a strong apology and a purposeful 
resolution by the church, by the Pope, that this is not going to happen in this way again. I think that's encouraging for most people. Yes, and I, I think that just on Vigano, you know, very briefly, that the central charge of Vigano against Pope Francis was that the Pope had somehow rehabilitated McCarrick and, and ignored the allegations of sexual misconduct against him. Now, what the McCarrick report shows is that actually Vigano had been asked to investigate an allegation of abuse against McCarrick in 2012 and had not done so. I think that, that was really quite startling to me. And, and there are, of course, many other elements of the Vigano testimony that were dismantled by the McCarrick report. But I think that, that aside, I think the, the report does show that, that there were that, you know, a series of failings by church leadership around McCarrick, failure to listen to victims, failure to investigate allegations, the too ready willingness to believe the bishop, in this case McCarrick, saying he was innocent. McCarrick was obviously very plausible. John Paul II believed him. John Paul II knew him very well. And on that basis, promoted him and appointed him to Washington. I, I do think, uh, however, that it is troubling that John Paul II, as the report says, for, for, for some time, did not want to promote McCarrick and then suddenly changed his mind, despite having Cardinal O'Connor's letter saying, look, here are the problems. I think that the, the difficulty is, is that changing of his mind. But I think uh, the, the bottom line is that we do have to, at one level, remember the context of the time. That doesn't excuse it. That doesn't justify it. But we do have to remember that. And I think, but we have to be honest that, that, that this was a very serious failing by the church leadership. Yeah. And so we talk about St. John Paul II. I think it's important to recognize all those things you just said. It's there's there were reasons, and the McCarrick report tries to tease out those reasons why McCarrick, even though there were some allegations against him, why he was able to somehow get through the process, if you will. And then the McCarrick report just brings up this mentality. I don't I, I had a tough time kind of piecing this together, but trying to stick to the facts and then they, they bring up this experience that he had in Poland with people trying to take down bishops and, and take down the standing of the Catholic Church. And this left a very strong impression on him. Where does this come from? Like, why was that such an important point to make in the report? I think that really highlighted the, the, the blind spot that, that, that John Paul II had on abuse, that when he had served as a bishop in, in Poland, archbishop in Poland, he, the, the communist authorities would make false allegations against, against priests in relation to abuse, for example. And so when I think John Paul II heard of allegations of abuse, I think there was a sort of, that there could be a trigger there for wariness rather than we must investigate it was what's this all about but i think that was one of the problems now of course we the church shouldn't forget that allegations must be investigated you can't just assume just because someone is accused of something that they have done it you have we have to 
maintain natural justice in terms of the rights of people who are accused. But I, I think that this experience John Paul II had certainly played some role, some impact. The U.S. bishops are, are meeting next week. And I know that in your book, The Outsider, you wrote about these attempts by the media and by some in the hierarchy, especially including Americans, to undermine Pope Francis. And I think you'd probably agree with us that has only escalated in the last six or eight months. What do you think, obviously, Archbishop Pierre, the nuncio, is going to address the bishops? And I'm certain that he has great concerns about how our church has reacted during this election season. Any thoughts or, or insights on or recommendations for American Catholics in the coming days and going forward? I'll make a prediction, perhaps, what Archbishop Pierre might say, and I, I don't think it's my place to make recommendations, but <laughs> the prediction, I think, he'll say around, certainly around politics and, and the election, as I think you can say, please avoid polarization, that, we, that there can't be bishops who are in one political camp or, or, or the other please uh, avoid that and i think that's what pope francis was saying in fratelli tutti which is all about politics was to avoid that divisiveness that politics is so full of at the moment and i think that's what archbishop pierre will, will will certainly focus on and i think he'll also focus on yes the issue that you raised about the opposition that there's been to francis perhaps he will focus on the need to follow the Francis agenda more closely and not to simply go about life as if the Pope doesn't exist, which I think has been <laughs> what we've seen in some cases. I think it's going to be a, a tough meeting, but I think it'll, it could well also be a, a turning point or at least a step in a new direction. Let's hope it is. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Christopher. I know it is super late over in London. Give my best to the family and to the baby who must be getting big. Yeah, he's getting big. Thanks for all the great work you do. Once again, it's Christopher Lamb. You can check out his writing in the tablet and buy his book, The Outsider, available from Amazon and published by Orbis Books. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Dan. Always great to uh, talk to you and keep up your great work too. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chris. 